Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Matt Heinz, and I lead the insurance practice here at J.P. Morgan for North America. In covering the insurance market, our clients spend a lot of time thinking about fixed income. So I'm pleased to be joined by my colleague, Andrew Norelli. Andrew is a portfolio manager from our global fixed income group. Andrew manages multi-sector fixed income strategies, both benchmarked and unconstrained. So Andrew is the perfect person for the discussion today because in these multi-sector and unconstrained portfolios, Andrew looks across the globe for fixed income opportunities, including emerging markets and below investment grade. So Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks, Matt. Great to be here, and thank you for all those who seem to care what I might have to say. <laughs> thanks. So over the next hour or so, we'll have a discussion about fixed income markets, and I've prepared some questions for Andrew that we'll discuss. So, Andrew, with that, let's get started. With the 10-year hovering around 70 basis points, I think I looked this morning, how should investors be thinking about the role of core to core plus fixed income in their portfolios? And I know you got some broader roles within the firm around asset allocation committees. Where are you positioned versus your target and ranges to core fixed income? Well, the easy answer to that question is it should occupy the same role in a portfolio as it has for the last 30 years or so. For roughly that time, fixed income markets in general have been, well, let's say high quality duration in fixed income markets has been anti-correlated with riskier portions of the portfolio. And that's not just true for risk parity portfolios, but really for most large asset management organizations, as well as for retail investors. You know, a 60-40 stock bond portfolio at its core does depend on core fixed income to reduce overall portfolio volatility and, frankly, to hedge equities. Now, with rates as low as they are, I'm asked this question a lot. You know, Andrew, does it still work? <laughs> Can we still use core fixed income to hedge our equities? And the short answer is yes. But the longer answer is that it's not going to work as well. So for the same amount of portfolio volatility, the allocation to fixed income needs, frankly, to increase. So rates are unlikely to go negative in the U.S. I think to the extent we were to enter a prolonged economic downturn, which we perhaps get into a little more detail later, the 10-year yield would continue to go lower. And the fears of sort of an anti-correlation taper tantrum type situation where yields go much higher and risk goes much lower in price, unlikely to persist. And the reason why is because of the tenant in modern central banking, which is that when financial conditions get tight, and that just means markets sell off, the knee-jerk reaction, which is super quick hair trigger these days, is to cut rates in when rates are at zero to stimulate. And those forces are downward on yields, even if the starting point is low. Now, that does also mean, in my mind, that risk premium need to be wider on equities and on fixed income, knowing that the magnitude diversification benefit from fixed income is smaller just mathematically than it has been in the past. And that factors into my macro view, which we might get into. Yeah, you touched on a few things there. One about rates potentially staying low and sound like you have negative rate views, but 
with those views and all the stimulus measures that have been taken, do you have any concerns about inflation or is it in the picture at all for you right now? Well, okay, so I have a nuanced view on that. Over the long term, we are very likely at some point to see significant inflation because perhaps it won't surprise many people on this call, but what developed market governments are doing now, and actually some emerging market governments are engaging in MMT, modern monetary theory. Central banks are printing money to buy government bonds that finances ever larger budget deficits, and those are aid payments, frankly, to keep the economies afloat. But what that does, modern monetary theory shifts the burden of inflation control from the central bank to the legislature. So if you read the books on MMT, they don't say you can have deficits forever. They say you can have deficits until you get inflation. And then the legislature has to close the deficit. But in democracies, it's unreasonable to expect elected officials to snap close a budget deficit when inflation rears its head because it guarantees a small recession at least and they get voted out of office. And so when faced with inflationary pressure, human nature of our elected officials will take over and we'll have inflation. But over the near term, it's very unlikely. So if we survive the COVID crisis unscathed, what will emerge is a corporate sector and a government sector, which are far more indebted than they were before the crisis. It's obvious in the case of governments, but in the case of firms, notwithstanding the fact that spreads have been forced back tighter by the central banks, corporate supply has been gigantic. And so EBITDA has shrunk, debt levels have grown, and so leverage has increased. Delevering post-crisis is a deflationary force, and so actually I think inflation is not a problem until far into the future. Great. Thank you. So you're fresh out of the investment quarterly meeting where all our senior investors get together there's been a lot of discussion about the shape of the recovery. Can you give us your expectations on the pace of the recovery, both on GDP growth and unemployment? Yeah. Broadly speaking, in our investment quarterly, we expect unemployment to recover, but only gradually. So call that you know, 10%, 9% at the end of 2020, and still not much below 5 6% at the end of 2021. So that is a slow recovery in the labor market here in the U.S. And GDP, even though we'll see sequentially big GDP growth as the recovery takes hold, that level of output, the size of the American economy is not likely to get back to 2019 levels until 2022. Now, that's not a particularly constructive outlook, but it doesn't mean bearishness generally on risk assets either because the amount of stimulus is creating massive asset price inflationary effects. And over time, that's likely to continue as long as the economy languishes. So we have this sort of perverse situation where markets diverge from the economic performance, but we've already seen that happening. It's news to no one. Yeah. So you mentioned the issue in in corporate credit. We're kind of in an interesting time period, a lot of issues within corporate credit, but then the like you said, the issuance is off the chart. So, you know, kind of how far along are we in the downgrade or default cycle at this point? We are most of the way along in terms of the IG downgrade cycle. You know, we've seen a lot of that. But the downgrades that have occurred recently and may occur in the future will create fallen angels that retain the support of the Fed because of the terms of their participation that their corporate credit bond purchases. 
So downgrades aren't really a concern in the ID space, but in the high yield space, we're still just entering the default phase. And even though we've mm-hmm. had names like, you know, Neiman's and Diamond Offshore and Whiting go the way of bankruptcy, there's still many more names, roughly call it 8% of the high yield index, which is priced for default and likely to default. As we talk about high yield valuations, that's not a reason not to own high yield because you don't take a loss when these credits default and they're already priced for it. But what it does do is the spread contracts without you making money. A 5,000% yield from Neiman Marcus bonds drops out of the index. And so optically, it goes tighter. So the real expected return on high yield is much lower than the headline spread. And that's important for investors to realize. And sticking with the IG space, are there areas where you are finding opportunity or value currently? And then flip side of that is what parts of the IG space give you concern? Well, there are opportunities in IG. There's a lot of attention and attractiveness to the investment grade universe at the moment because it has direct support of the Fed. And they've made their bond purchase program progressively more accommodative as time's gone on in the COVID crisis, most recently effectively setting up indices that they'll buy corporate bonds across the credit and sector spectrum. And that removes this necessity that investment grade issuers sign a certification in order to get their bonds bought. So anyway, it's much easier for them to buy bonds and they can buy a lot more. So the investment grade space is definitely well-supported, definitely backstopped by the Fed, and it's tight as a result of that. Now, it doesn't mean there are no opportunities. So I'll give you an example. The Fed buys bonds up to five years, and they just started their secondary purchases this week, and they paid egregiously high prices for short and investment grade. In fact, in some cases, for the highest quality names, negative spread, so yields lower than treasuries. Now, what that's done is it's created almost no opportunity in the front end, but it's steep in credit curves. So if you're willing to buy longer dated triple B, and it doesn't have to be very long, let's say 10-year triple B bonds, there's still quite a bit of spread left, and the spread curve is upward sloping. So for every month that passes that you own that bond, the fair spread contracts and you get some capital appreciation as well as the carry during that time. We call that roll down. So roll down is favorable out the curve, and it's certainly reasonable to expect the Fed investment grade backstop to be there for quite some time. So there are opportunities in investment grade. Now, if you like investment grade, you should probably like high yield better because if investment grade is going to work for you, it means spreads will stay the same or go tighter and you'll earn the carry. High yield spreads, in order for you to win, stay the same or go tighter and you earn the carry and they're very highly correlated. So if your expectation is that spreads will go tighter or stay the same, you might as well own high yield instead of investment grade if your risk tolerance allows it. And so investment grade is a pretty easy trade at the moment. And for that reason, relative value on average, notwithstanding those opportunities that I mentioned, it does look on the rich side. Okay. So you mentioned the Fed's involvement in the corporate bond market, and we know there's the announcement of the TALP program. The Fed will be making purchases and securitize, and they're making broad purchases and securitize. So there's still opportunities in securitize or parts of the securitized market that you like? Yeah, this is where I think the opportunities are. So if we look at the portfolios that I manage, the core plus bond fund, the income fund, the yields on these products are quite wide at the moment. So given all of the credit tightening that's gone on in the last month and a half, perhaps it's surprising to learn that we can still build a core plus portfolio that has doubled the yield of the ag. And that 
yield enhancement primarily comes from securitized markets, which have not rallied back as much as corporate credit, and yet the fundamentals have improved as much as corporate credit. I would argue that the fundamentals of corporate credit haven't really gotten that much better because they've increased leverage. But back in March, when securitized was undergoing effectively fire sales from leveraged players that created big price drops, there was also a lot of uncertainty around the fundamentals. We knew that there would be government support for households and firms. We knew there would be forbearance, but there was a lot of ambiguity about what that meant. In the months since, forbearance has been clarified in a borrower and investor-friendly manner, taxpayer-unfriendly, and remittances and the amount of forbearance and the performance of household balance sheets has become more clear. So the fundamentals have improved dramatically and prices have not snapped back as much. And so there are significant opportunities in securitized and our portfolios remain, and in some cases have increased holdings in those opportunities. You touched on high yield a little bit. So if we turn to more of the plus sector of fixed income, you had a relatively positive view on high yield. What are your views on emerging market debt at this point? EM is tricky for me because emerging markets benefited dramatically from globalization, and they also benefited from structural advantages that were created by the developed market economies in the last couple decades. And we know what Trump feels about those structural advantages, namely that China has abused them and should no longer be afforded the advantages, let's say, the Bretton Woods and the WHO created for developing economies. So prior to COVID, the trade war itself was bad for emerging market creditworthiness given the political winds. But after COVID, it's even worse because I feel like those post-Bretton Woods institutions of the World Bank and the IMF have been further weakened by the political winds. So, for example, in the CARES Act, the U.S. has earmarked $500 billion of extra support for the IMF. But I would like to be a fly on the wall in the Oval Office when the aid runs in and says we need to sign a $500 billion check for the IMF that will create credit aid for Africa, Middle East, and Caribbean nations when, of course, the U.S. has significant capital needs of its own here at home as we try to bridge our economy across the COVID hole that we're in now. So those institutions have been weakened. And sadly, we see that even though developed markets made a lot of progress in COVID suppression, worldwide case counts are right now by a lot at record daily highs. And it's creating a humanitarian crisis the epicenter of which is in several emerging market countries currently. So creditworthiness to me has been eroded. And the final thing I'll say is that in the time of COVID, there has been debt relief for emerging market countries by official sector lenders, the Paris Club, the World Bank, the IMF. And those entities are officially calling for private sector debt relief, which means principal haircuts. Mm-hmm. And so the wins for support for bondholders are not there, and that doesn't impact all emerging market credits. The ones where there is yield are squarely in the crosshairs in my mind. So it's tough for me to really get excited about emerging markets, even though the headline yields look okay at the index level. So it really is securitized in terms of the main opportunity where expected returns on a default-adjusted, loss-adjusted basis are the highest, in my opinion, at the moment. And then just within EMD, then can you just talk a bit about local currency versus hard currency and then corporates versus sovereigns at this point? And you're not sounding like you're, you're underweight generally in EMD, but for the EMD that we do own, can you discuss how we'd be positioned within those sectors? 
Yeah, it's hard currency. And I'm going to say something which sounds like heresy, but maybe some <laughs> folks it'll ring true for. If you buy a corporate bond that has a yield of seven, what is the expected return? It's not seven because there's some probability of default, but let's say it's five. You know, there's probability of default loss on that corporate bond. You diversify it away at portfolio level and you can still expect to earn something close to the yield, but not equal to it. The yield is what you earn if you get paid back on time by everybody on time and in full. Now, if we go to a currency investment, I'm going to buy BRL. And right now, the yield differential on Brazil versus the U.S. is really low, like 3%, lowest it's been forever. But 3% is not the expected return. The expected return for a non-dollar currency for a dollar investor is zero. And you learn this in college, right? They tell you, oh, well, you know, you can't make money by just owning high-yielding currencies and being short low-yielding currencies because the FX forward rate always adjusts. And there's been this reluctance of the investment community to embrace that idea over time. But lo and behold, it seems to be true. So there's been a persistent, for decades, yield advantage owning Brazil, but you always lose on the FX over time. Okay. It's not just that owning local currency can't be a very productive position in the portfolio. It moves wildly. It's very volatile. You can make tons of money by calling it correctly. But as an investment, it does not earn money, in my opinion having tortured it, trying to figure out how that might not be the case, but it's not a position that will structurally appear in my portfolios. You might see it from time to time as a trade, but it's not an investment. We talked a little bit about high yield. Do you comment on high yield versus bank loans at this point? Yeah. I actually think bank loans are cheap relative to high yield. It's absolutely true that the bank loan market has been the dumping ground for low-quality credit. So whether that means private equity-sponsored businesses that have low credit quality that issue only in loans, or whether you have lower credit quality corporate bond issuers that refinance their bonds with loans, the total ratings, creditworthiness of loans has migrated downward so that it's lower in credit rating than higher corporate bonds, even though the seniority is higher because loans are secured. Now, the other issue with loans is negative convexity. So if the loan trades at par, it's never going to go up. It might go up a point, but it's not going to go up five points. You can only earn the carry. You cannot earn price appreciation in loans that trade near par. So you have this negative convexity effect because of their perpetual callability. Now the loan market has adjusted downward in price so that the negative convexity is much lower, and yet the yield has also gone significantly higher. So ordinarily, if you snap your fingers and take away negative convexity, the yield should decline. But actually, you have a less problematic convexity position and more yield. So actually, loans are on a relative basis a bit cheap to bonds at the moment. I think that's more a commentary on how tight performing high-yield credit is. So you mentioned in passing a few moments ago that, you know, I like high-yield credit, but on RV versus investment grade, yes. But high yield is quite tight at the moment, and my near-term macro view is not so friendly on beta products. You know, liquidity is being actually, as we speak, withdrawn from the market. Now, everybody knows the Fed's going to be on hold at zero forever. Everyone knows that the Fed balance sheet is expanding massively with speed that is many, many dozens of multiples faster than in the credit crisis, and that all central banks around the world are doing something similar. And 
it's also common knowledge that government support is going to be there when needed, not just in the U.S., but globally. What's not well understood is that from time to time, we go through these periods where the composition of the Fed balance sheet changes. And with the Treasury increasing their TGA account quite dramatically, building a war chest for munition, money supply is actually shrinking right now in the U.S. And that is a liquidity withdrawal. We've seen a bit of a wobble last week in equity prices. And the same is true when we look at the COVID statistics. COVID statistics are worsening, but there is still cash in portfolios, money that needs to get put to work, but it's being sucked up. Every time we get a COVID wobble, some cash gets sucked up. So I think that over the near term, we have some risk to the downside and high yield trades with a lot of beta to equities, whereas securitized products, which I've already said are cheaper and give more yield, don't have beta to equity products. So as I'm trying to build diversified portfolios that maintain yield but have much less volatility than a portfolio of high-yield corporates or IG corporates or emerging market credit, securitizing is very helpful and it's becoming even more so because of the tightness of high-velocity corporate credit. You touched on liquidity a little bit there and, you know, there's been a lot of support. Can you kind of talk us through the evolution of the liquidity conditions as the crisis evolved, kind of how it looks now versus mid-March? Ooh, that is a great question. (laughs) All right. So liquidity means a couple different things. On the one hand, it means how much do you have to pay someone to transfer your asset into cash? What's the bid offer cost? What's the transaction cost to liquidate a bond or a stock? And so when markets are illiquid, bid offer is wide and transaction costs are high and vice versa when markets are liquid. Now, the other meaning, of course, is how plentiful is cash? What is the cash availability? How much does it cost to acquire cash? And both of those concepts in the case of liquidity have been mind-bogglingly quickly fixed by the Fed. So if I think back to March 22nd, which was a Sunday, I witnessed gigantic weekend transactions in over-the-counter fixed income. And it's only the second time in my career that I've seen it. The first time was the Sunday that Lehman went under when I was in the New York Fed. And so it's that significant. The market was mega illiquid, 20 points of bid offer on those trades that occurred that weekend, repriced the whole securitized market. And the Fed, through their increasing the balance sheet, which increases the bank reserves, not one for one necessarily, but bank reserves, which is basically the amount of cash in circulation has increased dramatically. And so that makes cash more available. It means there's more buyers for assets in the marketplace. And so that has solved liquidity problem number two. But the first, buying and selling bid offer with, they've also dramatically fixed by their, what we'll call credit easing. So buying ETFs in the corporate and high yield market, and now secondary market purchases in the corporate IG market. So they didn't even need to do those things. All they had to do was pledge to do it and put the size in place and the greed of the market all of a sudden created liquidity where it was absent before. So they have succeeded. They get an A plus in both cases. And so while I have issues with the long-term effectiveness of the programs that the Fed and other central banks have put in place, they did fix it. And the liquidity both kinds in March was the worst I had ever seen it, including right around that time in Lehman. So like, for example, I had to replace all of the emerging market risk we had at Morgan Stanley 
versus Lehman for the whole entire firm, me personally. And I remember what that was like. And March was worse in terms of how difficult it was to get trades done. Wow, that's an interesting comment there. Andrew, thanks for the insights today. Enjoyed the discussion. And we hope everybody enjoyed today's call. Thanks for your time and partnership. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by J.P. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by J.P. Morgan Investment Management Inc. or J.P. Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local J.P. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada for institutional clients use only by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave RL, in Asia-Pacific, APAC by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, 
Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.